This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Stephen Grywalski slept on his girlfriend's pull-out couch while the TV played in the background. The white noise didn't bother him. He could sleep through anything. Or so he thought. In the middle of the night, he was awoken by a different sound, a low, guttural scrape emanating from beside him. He tried to ignore it. He assumed his girlfriend, Susanna Cahalan, was grinding her teeth. Over the past few days, Susanna, a 24-year-old New York Post journalist, had been acting strange. She was unable to concentrate at work and had been experiencing extreme mood swings. One minute she was sobbing at her desk, the next she was laughing. Suffice to say, Susanna was under a lot of stress. It wouldn't be strange for her to be grinding her teeth. However, As Stephen pulled a pillow over his head to block out the noise, the guttural sounds became what Susanna later described as a high-pitched squeak, like sandpaper rubbed against metal, and then turned into deep, sling-blade-like grunts. Alarmed, Stephen turned around to see Susanna sitting straight up. In the glow of the TV, he saw her eyes were wide open, her pupils dilated, Suddenly, her arms shot out in front of her like a zombie. Her body stiffened, and then her eyes rolled back. She gasped for air, blood and foam bubbling out of her mouth. Stephen called 911, and Susanna was rushed to the hospital. Both Stephen and Susanna had feared she was on the verge of a psychotic break. But this haunting night marked her true descent into madness. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. 
Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on Susanna Cahalan and anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. In 2009, 24-year-old Susanna experienced paranoia and hallucinations, leading to a month-long hospital stay where she went from psychotic to catatonic. This week, we'll explore how her symptoms emerged and upheaved her life as doctors searched desperately for a diagnosis. Next week, we'll meet the man that solved the mystery with just pen and paper after a team of experts were left scratching their heads. We'll also learn how the newly discovered disease has been linked to mistaken cases of mood disorders like bipolar disorder and, in some cases, demonic possession. In 2009, Susanna Cahalan was a journalist for the Sunday edition of the New York Post. While it was only her second year as a full-time staff writer, she was no stranger to the fast-paced world of New York City journalism. After her junior year of high school, she did two summer internships at the Post. According to her memoir, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, she began working her way up to full-time writer thanks to her first big assignment, an expose on a New York University frat house and its debauchery. Not only did she arrive at the Post's offices with the story, but she also came with pictures of herself playing beer pong and joining in the decadence. While the story never ran, her editor was pleased and gave her more assignments where she covered everything from crime to local news to celebrities. By 2009, Susanna wasn't some teenager getting coffee and itching for real-world journalism experience. She was 24 years old, living on her own in New York City, and writing for the self-described longest continuously run newspaper in America. Susanna relished every aspect of her job, including the weekly pitch meetings, which took place every Tuesday. It was something every reporter meticulously prepared for. However, one week in the spring of 2009, she forgot about the meeting completely. Usually, she had three ideas that she could, at the very least, bluff her way through if she needed to. But this week, she had nothing. She couldn't explain how she had forgotten and slunk into her editor's office that Tuesday, doing her best to keep her head down. When it came time to pitch, the editors looked eagerly to Susanna. It was one of the most embarrassing moments of her life. She tried to fake it, badly improvising half-baked ideas, but could hardly make it through a single one. According to her memoir, one editor interrupted her and said, that's really just not good enough. You need to be bringing better stuff than this. Susanna left the meeting feeling angry and puzzled by her own behavior. She had no excuses. For the first time, she worried she wasn't cut out for journalism. 
How could she suddenly be so terrible at her job? The question lingered in her mind as she walked home to deal with another frustrating problem. That afternoon, she had to get her apartment ready to be sprayed for bedbugs. It had been weighing on her mind for days, even though the exterminator had already come once and had told her she was bedbug-free. He told her to hold off on paying for an unnecessary and astronomically priced extermination, but Susanna knew he was wrong. A couple of days earlier, she had woken up with two mysterious bites on her arm. And though neither she nor the exterminator could find any evidence of bugs, Susanna was convinced they were hiding somewhere. So before he came back, she covered her bases by cleaning and throwing out anything the pests could hide in. She even started throwing out articles she'd written that held special memories for her. There were the sillier ones that made her smile, such as the time she went undercover as a stripper looking for illegal butt enhancements. Then there was the jailhouse interview that she conducted with a child kidnapper. It was the biggest story of her career and led to the kidnapper's lawyers running a smear campaign against Susanna and the New York Post. Her journalistic integrity was questioned for telling security guards that she was a friend of the kidnapper to get around the jail's no-media policy. But even after the negative press, the Post had defended her. It was a landmark article for her, but now it was trash. It could be infested like everything else. Throwing away such memories felt odd for Susanna, who described herself in her book as a nostalgia pack rat, but she had to rid herself of the infestation. This bedbug paranoia could have been more than overcaution. It may have actually been the beginning signs of psychosis. During psychosis, a person begins losing touch with reality. They can have delusions and hallucinations that affect the way they see, hear, and think about the world. Susanna might have been experiencing a specific kind of delusion known as delusional parasitosis. According to the Minnesota Department of Health, it is a psychiatric condition where people have the mistaken belief that they are parasitized by bugs, worms, or other creatures. Even with no evidence of parasites, sufferers of delusional parasitosis are convinced that their home is crawling with nasty critters. Parasitosis can be a symptom of obsessive-compulsive disorder, dementia, and even schizophrenia. According to Harvard Medical School, in extreme cases, people may even dig into their skin to try to take out imaginary parasites that have invaded their body. Thankfully, Susanna never got to this point, but she couldn't help but obsess over the imaginary infestation. She was sure the bugs were in her apartment, hiding in her papers, swarming in her bed, or even on her body. When she was done cleaning, Susanna was hit with a sudden migraine. Again, this was unusual for her. She worried she might be getting the flu, but she tried to shrug it off. The migraine eventually faded, but after the exterminator sprayed her apartment, Susanna's paranoia found a new focus, her boyfriend, Stephen. He was a musician who Susanna describes as having honest eyes. She writes in her book, those eyes with nothing to hide 
made me feel as if I had dated him forever. But as trusting as his eyes may have been, she found herself worrying for no reason in particular that he was cheating on her. One morning, alone in Stephen's apartment after he left for band practice, Susanna began reading Stephen's emails. She was never the type to get jealous, let alone rifle through a boyfriend's possessions, but she couldn't help herself. She eventually found some old emails from an ex-girlfriend, most of which ended with, I love you, words that she and Stephen hadn't said yet. What had begun as an impulsive glance at his computer became a two-hour-long invasion of Stephen's privacy. And that wasn't all. When she was done with his emails, Susanna set her sights on his dresser. But as she contemplated going through the drawers, she paused. She thought Stephen might have a security camera. She suddenly believed he might have tempted her into the search and that it could all be some kind of elaborate test of her loyalty. People that are going through periods of psychosis are often concerned that somebody is watching them. These fears can endure for long periods or come and go in short bursts. For Susanna, her fears were intense but short-lived. She told herself that the idea her boyfriend was testing her was ridiculous and continued searching through Stephen's things. Eventually, she found a box filled with love letters from ex-girlfriends. She started going through them and most likely would have read them all if she didn't catch a glimpse of herself in the mirror. Her face appeared, in her own words, distorted and unfamiliar. Her hair was a mess. She could hardly recognize the crazed woman in her underwear staring back at her. According to her memoir, she thought, I never act like this. What is wrong with me? I have never in my life snooped through a boyfriend's things. A couple of minutes later, another migraine struck, followed by nausea. Her left hand started tingling and soon went completely numb. She powered through the pain as she put Stephen's things back where they belonged. All of a sudden, guilt washed over her. She had violated Stephen's trust. She wondered if her new birth control was causing hormonal changes that made her jealous and possessive. Meanwhile, the numbness in her hand moved down the left side of her body to her toes. She finally called the doctor and was told to visit a neurologist right away. The doctor feared that she was suffering from a blood clot or stroke. Susanna wasn't usually one to worry too much about health, even though she had been diagnosed with melanoma five years earlier. Luckily, doctors had caught that early, and it had only required minor surgery. Since then, she had treated the incident like a bad dream, but now she worried about what her new symptoms could mean. She made the neurology appointment right away. The neurologist put her through a battery of routine checks, all of which came back normal. Her blood was drawn and she got an MRI, which showed no signs of a stroke or a blood clot. The only concerning thing on the MRI was that her lymph nodes were enlarged. While they had to wait for some blood tests to confirm, the doctor believed Susanna might have mononucleosis. Mononucleosis, known simply as mono or the kissing disease, 
is a viral infection which often affects teenagers and college students. Nausea and headaches are the most common symptoms of the disease, which can last two to four weeks. Susanna tried to get back to life as usual while she waited for her blood test results. But as the days passed, her symptoms only got worse. She became sensitive to bright lights and experienced dizzy spells. She managed to form some new pitches at work, but none of them were approved. It frightened her that she was still not performing at her best. Finally, about a week after her neurologist appointment, she began to feel better. At the same time, her blood results came back negative for mono. Since she was slowly starting to feel like her old self again, the doctor assumed her swollen lymph nodes were due to some other kind of viral infection that had run its course. But the next Wednesday morning, Susanna had a new set of problems. She was set to interview John Walsh of America's Most Wanted. And as she walked down the New York Post's hallway to meet him, Susanna's world began to collapse. Coming up, we'll see how Susanna's disease begins to play frightening tricks on her mind. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 2009, 24-year-old Susanna Kahalen began experiencing extreme paranoia, nausea, and sensitivity to bright lights. After her blood tests came back normal, her doctor thought a common viral infection was the cause. However, her symptoms were worsening. As she walked down her office hallway to interview John Walsh of America's Most Wanted, her world began to crumble. As she recounts in her memoir, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, the front page headlines adorning the walls of the post began to contract and expand as if they were breathing. They closed in on her as they inhaled and exhaled. Just like Alice in Wonderland, where Alice's world and body change in size, the New York Post's ceilings rose exponentially higher above her. Her vision narrowed until it was as if she was looking down the hallway through a viewfinder. Susanna told herself to breathe through the hallucinations. Oddly, she wasn't afraid. She describes feeling something akin to the sterile rush of looking down from the window of a hundred-story skyscraper, knowing you won't fall. But when she made it into the room to meet Walsh, she was suddenly filled with morbid thoughts. She wondered if Walsh was thinking about his murdered son as he sat down for the interview. Walsh's publicist snapped Susanna out of her blank stare by introducing herself. Susanna struggled to respond, repeating that she was the reporter on the story several times. As she began the interview, she couldn't concentrate on Walsh's words, only latching onto a phrase here and there. 
She wrote single dissociated words onto her notepad in a daze. At one point, she, for some unknown reason, loudly laughed at one of his answers. That's when the publicist cut the interview short. Susanna insisted on walking them out, but she was unable to control her balance, stumbling and bumping into the walls on the way to the elevator. Walsh nodded politely as he left. Susanna had screwed up at work yet again. She doesn't remember how she got home that day. While she didn't know it at the time, Susanna was likely experiencing a lesser-known type of seizure in her temporal lobe. The brain's temporal lobe is located essentially behind your ears. It is responsible for interpreting vision, processing sound, and comprehending speech. A temporal lobe seizure is rather different than what we typically associate with seizures, where a person loses consciousness with uncontrollable muscle convulsions. The mind-bending distortions she saw in the hallway were all possible signs of such a seizure, which can last anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes. Before the interview, Susanna thought she was feeling better. Now, her strange symptoms were getting worse. Soon after the interview, she walked through Times Square on her way to work. She felt as if she was being attacked by the onslaught of billboards. Their bright lights burned into her eyes, yet another symptom of a temporal lobe seizure. This time, they made her so nauseous that she stumbled her way to work with a massive migraine. By the time she got to her office, she was convinced that she was losing her mind, and she told her coworker exactly that. Her coworker suggested that maybe she was hungover. In response, Susanna slammed her hands on the desk, shouting, I can't do this. She started bawling. She tried to stop, but she couldn't. Everyone in the office stared at her. Negative thoughts invaded her mind. I'm bad at my job. Stephen doesn't love me. I'm broke. I'm crazy. I'm stupid. And then suddenly, her emotions completely flipped. With tears still flowing, her sadness was replaced with sudden, sublime happiness. She was laughing now, feeling better than she'd ever felt. She went to the bathroom to splash some cold water on her face, but things still weren't right. The bathroom stalls seemed new to her, as if she had never seen or used one before. This time, she was experiencing a feeling known as jamais vu. The opposite of déjà vu, jamais vu is when someone finds an everyday occurrence or object strange and unfamiliar. This was yet another symptom of a temporal lobe seizure. When the feeling subsided, she returned to her desk and started cleaning. This mindless task made her happy again. She felt like she was in control of her life as she rid her desk of old articles and books. She next ranted to her editor, Paul, about how she wanted to write better stories and do real investigations. She finally had her life all figured out. Paul was alarmed by Susanna's rambling and believed she was having a mental breakdown. He'd seen it happen to another reporter before, right before they were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Paul went back to his desk and contemplated what to do next. 
Meanwhile, Susanna's emotional upswing was interrupted by a new delusion. She suddenly saw the top of her own head as she floated above her office. Only seeing another co-worker snapped her out of this delusion. Susanna's mood swings gradually went away over the course of the day. That night, she was able to calm down long enough to watch TV with Stephen on her pull-out couch. That was the night she shot up in bed, woke up a sleeping Stephen, and violently convulsed. Stephen could only watch horrified as Susanna's arms shot out in front of her. She bit her tongue, causing blood to mix in with the foam coming out of her mouth. It was a frightening sight. She was unable to breathe, constantly inhaling but never exhaling as the foam spewed from her mouth. After his initial shock subsided, Stephen laid Susanna on her side and called 911. Stephen held her hand as she was loaded into the ambulance. Susanna later learned that she had a tonic-clonic seizure, also known as a grand mal seizure. It arrives in two stages. The first stage, the tonic stage, causes the person's arms and legs to stiffen. They begin to lose consciousness and experience muscle spasms, which can cause cries or moans as air is forced out of the lungs. This is followed by the clonic stage, where the arm, leg, and facial muscles jerk rapidly. These seizures are usually caused by epilepsy, a nervous system disorder that, according to Cedars-Sinai, causes sudden, intense bursts of electrical activity in the brain. While it is often hard to pinpoint a cause for epilepsy, seizures can be caused by other conditions, such as sleep deprivation, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, and heavy alcohol use. Susanna was only 24 at the time, so she was still a bit too young for Alzheimer's disease. Her nightly glass of wine or two with dinner also didn't classify as heavy alcohol use. However, due to the stress of her mysterious ailments, she hadn't had a full night's sleep in a couple of days. That could have been the reason for her grand mal seizure. Whatever the cause, Susanna blacked out from her seizure and woke up in a hospital bed. The first thing she saw was a homeless man vomiting. There was another patient handcuffed to their bed, supervised by police officers. Instead of being confused and scared, Susanna was enraged. It had been weeks since she'd felt like herself. Her usual kind and patient demeanor was beginning to fade thanks to her disease. She suddenly became convinced that she was dying, but she was adamant that she would not die in this room. She demanded that she be let out. Stephen was right beside her. He watched helplessly as Susanna barked orders seemingly at no one. When a doctor agreed to move her into a private room, she was no longer worried for her life. Instead, she thought, people listen when I speak. The false idea that one has immense power over others can be classified as a delusion of grandeur. The Dictionary of Psychology by Ray Corsini defines delusions of grandeur as a grossly exaggerated belief of self-importance, power, wealth, or personal mission in life. The misconception that oneself is more important than one actually is. For Susanna, the delusion didn't last long. 
While she was being wheeled off to another hospital room, she began feeling sorry for Stephen. He didn't know the horrible truth. She was dying of melanoma. At least, that's what she thought was happening. She was convinced the cancer was suddenly back. In her psychotic state, she believed that the technician who did her MRI days earlier failed to see the cancer's re-emergence. Stephen's eyes filled with tears as Susanna gently told him her grim fate. Susanna interpreted the tears as a sign. Stephen couldn't handle what was happening to her. Then, her gentle demeanor swung back to rage. She screamed that she would destroy the MRI tech in court for not catching the melanoma. Stephen couldn't understand what was happening. He pleaded with her to stay calm. Typically, after a tonic-clonic seizure, a person is confused, exhausted, and weak. Occasionally, they're combative like Susanna, but this radical flip-flopping of emotions started during her office meltdown, hours before the seizure. And now, she was being wheeled through the hospital, angry and confused. She continued ranting about suing the MRI tech until a doctor interrupted her to tell her that seizures were fairly common. They couldn't keep her in the emergency room just to see if it would happen again. To them, Susanna was a raving woman who had suffered a single seizure. She was too far gone to tell them about her other symptoms. They did overhear her rants about melanoma and suggested that she look into it, but in the end, all they could do was suggest that she see a neurologist again. She was discharged that night, Friday the 13th, around two weeks after her paranoia about the bedbugs began. Susanna spent the weekend in her mother's home, ignoring phone calls from her co-workers. She couldn't face them after embarrassing herself with her breakdown. She did happen to speak with one friend, though, who suggested that she might have bipolar disorder. The National Institute of Mental Health defines bipolar disorder as a brain disorder that causes unusual shifts in mood, energy, activity levels, and the ability to carry out day-to-day -day tasks. Someone with bipolar disorder may at one moment feel elated, joyful, and energetic. This is called a manic episode. These are offset by depressive episodes where individuals are left feeling hopeless and depressed. Occasionally, both of these episodes can happen at the same time. Susanna felt this fit her symptoms perfectly. The diagnosis, while not yet given by a professional, made her feel better. She had a name for what was happening to her. In her delusion, the diagnosis even excited her. According to Bipolar Disorder, A Guide for Patients and Families by Francis Mark Mondamore, bipolar disorder appears in about 2% of the population. Included in that 2% are Winston Churchill, Virginia Woolf, Mark Twain, and Tim Burton, amongst other famous people. Susanna wrote in her book, I didn't even want to be cured. I now belong to an exclusive club of creatives. Susanna was completely satisfied with this self-diagnosis. However, her mother and stepfather, Alan, still brought her to the neurologist that Monday 
three days after her seizure. Again, her test came back normal. With nothing else to go on, the doctor asked about her drinking habits. Susanna hadn't had a drink at all during the hellish past week, but usually she averaged about two glasses of wine a night. What Susanna didn't know was that the doctor wrote down two bottles a night in his notes. He assumed that she was lying about how much she truly drank. In an article by the Associated Press, Dr. Bruce Rose states, doctors have a rule of thumb. Whatever the patient says they're drinking, multiply it by three. If they say two drinks a day, assume they have six. With that rule of thumb in mind, he told Susanna's mother that Susanna was just partying too much, working too hard, and sleeping too little. According to him, all she needed to do was stop drinking and take the prescribed anti-seizure medication. It wouldn't be the only prescription she was given that day either. Susanna's next appointment was with a psychiatrist. They concluded she was experiencing the manic and depressive episodes common to bipolar disorder. She was prescribed antipsychotic medication, Zyprexa. She was supposed to take it along with the new anti-seizure medication. Hopefully, one of them would fix what was ailing her. However, the medications may have come too late. The next night, Susanna became convinced the anti-seizure medication was actually the cause of all her problems. The numbness, the paranoia, everything that plagued her was the medication's fault. It didn't matter to her that she had only been taking the pills for about 24 hours at this point. In the middle of the night, she forced herself to throw up the little bit of medication that was in her system. She had another seizure the next day, Wednesday, March 18th, and the doctor insisted she keep taking her medication. To be safe, he wanted Susanna to get an EEG exam that Saturday. During an EEG or an electroencephalogram, electrodes are glued to a patient's head. These electrodes pick up the patient's brain waves or the electrical charges from brain cells to detect disorders such as narcolepsy, epilepsy, or psychosis. After a half hour of debate, Susanna agreed to hop in the car with Stephen, her mother, and her stepdad and head to the neurologist's office. As soon as they pulled out of the driveway, Susanna heard these words, You're a slut. I think Stephen should know. The insult was coming from her stepfather, Alan, in the driver's seat. The thing was, his lips weren't moving. Susanna leaned into the driver's seat, shaking with anger. When she questioned Alan, he told her he had said nothing at all. That was the wrong thing to say. Enraged, Susanna immediately unbuckled her seatbelt, opened the car door, and lunged out of the moving vehicle headfirst. Thankfully, Stephen grabbed her shirt, holding her back. Alan slammed on the brakes. Her mother screamed. When they got back into the car, they locked the child locks. Susanna banged on the door, screaming, let me out, repeatedly, until she passed out. When she woke up, her delusions of grandeur had returned. Susanna's whirlwind of psychosis continued when they arrived at the neurologist for the EEG. At the end of the test, she stepped out of the examination room 
and left. For some reason, she believed the nurse technician was just an actor hired by Susanna's mom and stepfather to punish her for her bad behavior. Not only did they hire the nurse, they hired everyone in the office as part of their master plan. However, as Susanna told her mother, she was too smart for their tricks. This was a different type of delusion, classified as a persecutory delusion. The misconception that people are intending to harm, spy on, or trick you. According to psychotherapist Amy Morin, persecutory delusions are one of the most common types of delusion. Susanna's paranoia was now causing her to put her own life in danger. She tried to jump out of a car. She believed her family, who were all attempting to help her, were creating elaborate plans to trick her. And the EEG technician's diagnosis? There's nothing wrong with you. Coming up, we'll follow Susanna's psychosis as she starts to believe her family is out to kill her. Now back to the story. In a matter of days, 24-year-old Susanna Cahalan's life went from burgeoning success story to psychotic mystery. In the spring of 2009, she began failing at her job as a journalist that was once so natural she was having seizures. She had visual and auditory hallucinations that were so upsetting she had tried to jump out of a moving car. Yet, she had just gotten a clean bill of health from doctors. According to them, her paranoia, seizures, and daring escapes were all because she was sleep-deprived, had a stressful job, or was drinking too much. Susanna herself was convinced she had bipolar disorder because of her mood swings. But neither a diagnosis of bipolar disorder nor the warnings about a wild life of partying sat well with Susanna's family. She was always a trustworthy, determined, and independent young woman. Everything they heard from doctors just didn't sound like their Susanna. It may be a bit hard to believe, but it had only been eight days since Susanna's late-night grand mal seizure. It was a disastrous week that left her entire family exhausted. Emotionally drained, Susanna's mother allowed her to go back to her New York City apartment that Sunday. The only condition was that, until then, she had to spend the night at her father's house. Susanna, her father, and her stepmother spent the day cleaning Susanna's apartment. When they were done and about to leave, a new thought intruded into Susanna's mind. She writes in her book, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, My father has taken my keys. I have no way to get back into my apartment. I am his prisoner. Susanna's delusions now convinced her that she was being kidnapped. With her father's hand firmly guiding her out of the apartment, Susanna began to scream. She threatened to call the cops. Her father hailed a cab, squeezing Susanna into the back seat in between himself and his wife. With both of them guarding the doors, they hoped to prevent another escape. Susanna told the cab driver to call the police and report the kidnapping. The cab driver, understandably alarmed, ordered them out of the cab. 
According to Susanna, her father just gritted his teeth. He told the driver, drive, don't you dare stop. The driver followed her father's orders, speeding through traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. Susanna has no idea what could have been going through his mind. Susanna eventually grew too tired to fight by the time they arrived at her father's Brooklyn Brownstone. She describes his house as an ode to American wars. World War I guns and Revolutionary War memorabilia decorated its walls along with busts of past presidents. Her paranoia waxed and waned throughout the night. At dinner, she heard her stepmother call her a spoiled brat, but her stepmother hadn't actually said anything. Susanna told her dad she was afraid to spend the night alone, then immediately told him to leave, which was followed up by an apology. This back and forth went on for hours. Susanna says she doesn't remember what she said, but she does know at one point she made her father, a man whose house was a monument to war and history, cry. In her words, this just added to my twisted need for power. I ordered him to leave the room and go back upstairs to his bedroom. Her father went upstairs to secretly monitor Susanna by listening through the brownstone's thin walls. He eventually dozed off while Susanna stayed downstairs. A loud pounding noise startled Susanna in the middle of the night. It was coming from upstairs. Frightened, Susanna picked up one of her father's antiques, a Revolutionary War sword. Its blade entranced her. She heard her stepmother Giselle's voice. She was begging, pleading not to be hurt. The mysterious pounding sound continued in Susanna's mind. She believed that these sounds were her father beating her stepmother. Her delusion continued, and next, the train painting that hung over the fireplace filled the room with black smog. Her father's decorative bust of Abraham Lincoln followed Susanna with its eyes. Meanwhile, the imaginary beating was getting worse. Susanna believed her father was killing Giselle because of her. She had to find a way out of the house. What if he came to kill her next? She screamed, pleading for someone to let her out of the brownstone. These frantic cries woke up her father. He came downstairs to check on her, but as he marched down the stairs, Susanna ran to the bathroom. She tried to barricade the locked door with an armoire, but it was too heavy for her to move. She looked out the bathroom's second-floor window. It was high, but she thought she'd be able to survive the fall. Anything to escape her father's imagined killing spree. She most likely would have jumped, but luckily, something distracted her. She saw a small Buddha that Susanna's stepmother kept in the bathroom. It smiled at her, and for some reason, that convinced her everything would be all right. After an hour of talking to her, her father was able to get Susanna to come out of the bathroom. He stayed with her on the couch until the next morning, Monday, March 23, 2009. They made a same-day appointment with the neurologist. When Susanna's mother and stepfather picked her up for the appointment, Susanna's paranoia was in full swing. She rushed out of the brownstone 
telling her mother to get her away from her kidnapper of a father immediately. At the office, the doctor insisted that all of Susanna's past tests had come back normal. He leveled with Susanna's mother, giving her a talk he'd probably given to countless other families who couldn't accept that their loved one is an alcoholic. All of Susanna's symptoms were signs of alcohol withdrawal. In order to get better, she needed to stay sober. The doctor even winked at Susanna when he said that she needed to knock off the partying. He failed to see the severity of what was happening in Susanna's mind. However, it was true that all of her symptoms, the anxiety, hallucinations, and seizures, did match up with alcohol withdrawal. Her mother pushed back. Susanna hadn't had a drink since this whole ordeal started. Her symptoms were getting worse. She needed to be hospitalized, now. The doctor, most likely just humoring the family, made some phone calls. There was an open bed at New York University Langone Medical Center's 24-hour EEG monitoring floor. Susanna's mother took her there right away. However, Susanna had hardly entered the hospital when she was down on the floor having yet another seizure. In her memoir, Susanna states that from here on out, her memory started to go. All she really remembers from her time at the hospital are some hallucinations. Susanna writes that at this time, the break between my consciousness and my physical body was now finally fully complete. In essence, I was gone. All her family could do was helplessly watch Susanna get sicker. Maybe somehow the kind, smart, and wonderful Susanna that they knew would come back. Or maybe she'd stay like this forever. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we'll explore Susanna Cahalan's month-long stay in NYU Hospital, where a team of doctors watch over her as her mind, speech, and body deteriorated. As the doctors scratch their heads, all hope will hang on one man known for solving mysterious cases. For more information on Susanna Cahalan and anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Cahalan extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Brandon Rizzuto and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.